There's a straight line from Hegel to Woke, and that line is drawn through Alfhaven. of philosophy. I'm Gil. Here with me today is Lillian. Hi. Will. Hey. And Owen. Hey, Gil. All right. So today we are doing the second part of our series called What is Dialectics? If you haven't listened to it yet, I recommend going back and checking out the first episode in the series where we talked about Kant. Today we're moving forward a little bit in our history of philosophy and talking about Hegel. The four of us looked at a few passages from his 1830 encyclopedia and the preface and introduction to the philosophy of right. So Hegel was one of the major post-Kantian German idealists alongside Fichte, Schelling, and my beloved and mostly forgotten Maimon. All of them were involved in a project to restore metaphysics after Kant's attack in the three critiques. Basically, Kant had said that we don't have the right to talk about the nature of things in themselves. We can only talk about how they appear for us. He thought that we could do that systematically, but that we could never legitimately step beyond appearances and know the nature of reality or things in themselves. That sounded a lot like the death of metaphysics, and a lot of people even today think that this is a good thing. If claims about the nature of things in themselves are just ungrounded, wild speculation, we should you know, probably cut that out and just talk about how they appear. But not everybody was satisfied. Uh, Kant himself argued, as we saw when we talked about the transcendental dialectic from the first critique, that we can't help but step beyond those limits and make claims about things in themselves, and probably most importantly, claims about freedom. And it wasn't actually clear how it was possible for us to have any systematic or scientific knowledge of cognition without some kind of metaphysical commitments. You know, if reason has this structure that Kant was able to pick apart, that sure, fine. But where did reason come from? You know, what the hell is it? At the minimum, we seem to be saying that reason exists, which does sound like a metaphysical claim of some kind. And what's the relationship between reason and the things that it knows? How does understanding even work? And what's going on with that mysterious thing in itself? So all the great post-Kantian German idealists are trying to resolve these kinds of puzzles. They all buy Kant's critique, and they don't want to return to pre-critical metaphysics like we used to get with my good, good boys, Spinoza and Leibniz. They thought instead that it was necessary to redo metaphysics after Kant's critical intervention. In their eyes, this would complete Kant's project, which they saw as being essentially unfinished or ungrounded. Now, Hegel's really complicated. Um, Really hard to rein him in and talk about him. I'm sure we've all got a lot to say. Uh, in broadest brushstrokes, I think we could say that for Hegel, the nature of reality, which he calls the in itself, just is or has the same structure as the way it appears to us, which he calls the for itself. So in the end, there's no real difficulty in explaining how cognition is possible, because things in themselves and our cognitions of them have the same basic shape or are identical in some way. But, as we saw with Kant, our reason is at least sometimes contradictory. And Hegel's actually going to say it always is. Reason enters into conflict with itself. Things appear to us as conditioned, and reason demands that we get to the unconditioned, which can't be given in experience. There's these infinite demands, infinite understanding, which can't be realized, but which make it possible. We fall into all these unavoidable antinomies, where we make contradictory claims about things that both seem necessary. And here's where things start to get weird, right? If Hegel says that things really are as they appear to us, 
and the way they appear to us is contradictory, then what we're saying is that the nature of things is contradictory in itself. And I think now we're getting closer to Hegel's understanding of dialectics. Last time we talked about how Kant couldn't draw limits around cognition without stepping beyond them somehow. Uh, right? In order to draw a boundary, you need to be on the other side of it. And Hegel wants to say, yeah, that's right. And it's true for things as well. He thinks real things can't be determinate. They can't be limited or finite without also themselves transcending those limits. Nothing remains within itself. In order to be what they are, things need to negate the limits that make them what they are in the first place. This is the sort of thing that we get with Hegel's conception of dialectical negativity. And it just goes way beyond the critical boundaries that Kant had set up. Right? We're doing like full-blown speculative metaphysics now, and Hegel thinks he can do it scientifically. So there's way too much more to say, and I've already gone on for too long as like our little intro here. Uh, I think I just want to flag up that we might also connect the dots between Hegel's idea of dialectics and a few other themes, like his, uh, his idealism, his concept of history, and of course, all the stuff from the philosophy of right on freedom, civil society, and the state. Uh, which might get us into his political conservatism. Maybe we could only just you know, do 100 more Hegel episodes. But I'm going to stop there and pitch it to you all and see what you all have to say. I want to ask a clarifying question first. So part of what you just said in introducing Hegel is this story about the life of metaphysics. And you said that Kant's metaphysics is understood as critical metaphysics as opposed to like what the early moderns were doing and then Hegel steps into this like speculative metaphysics mode I just feel like if you're not in the metaphysics world this like staging it's not even that clear to me what that what that means actually because I I just see them as just different arguments about like the nature of reality. And it seems like there's more of a story to stitch together for you. And that would be like helpful for me and maybe for the audience. I wonder if I'm definitely going to let, let Gil, you know, answer this question. Cause I think, you know, Gil is our, our resident idealist who, you know, we're hoping can guide us along, but you know, <laughs> uh, near the end there, I was thinking about, so what does Hegel make of, let's say the, um, the appearance reality distinction. So it seems to me that for Hegel, it isn't like, you know, um, there's this appearance and then there's this unknowable reality underneath it, but in your introduction, and I, I think this seems right, but this is very strange. Hegel wants to say that there is a, a homology between appearance and reality, or he doesn't think that appearance is reality, right? Am I am I misunderstanding, or does he actually think that? Because this is this is this is so wild to me. I've realized you know a lot of people call <laughs> out and say I'm doing Hegelian dialectics, then you actually read it, and this is far beyond what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a, a far less Ibram X. Kendi and Robin DiAngelo than I was expecting. <laughs> I will say that. And so he, he is he saying that, in, in other words, the, the problems that Kant set up aren't really problems because it, it actually turns out that as things appear, that is also true. That that isn't merely a mystification, a distortion, you know, um, hiding something that uh, to which we don't have access to about reality. I think these are actually probably both these questions are both connected because I think like pre-critical metaphysics, right? When Hegel uses the term like pre-critical metaphysics, I think he's referring to a metaphysics like someone, you know, like someone um, like Spinoza, 
Right, where Spinoza just like starts the ethics. If you look at Spinoza's ethics, right, he just starts it on God, and he just starts laying out like the future and like features and the nature of God. Um, and so, like a critical just metaphysics says it. wants cold turkey. Just go just right like, away, yeah. boom. Just no epistemological right justification in advance, or you know, I guess he did some of that in the treatise on the Imitation. How do we? How do we like, know? But... Doesn't matter. Here's what God. <laughs> yeah, is. just go. Here's what God is. Let's go. You know. Um, so, like the the critical <laughs> metaphysics, I think it. It wants to step back and ask about thinking, not just start making crazy claims about the universe. Like, what are the conditions? What are the oh. just? What's the justification? What is okay. thinking, first of all, right? And so, before we oh jump out God, into the universe, you know what I mean? Like, before you jump out into the universe and start making wild speculative claims about the nature of things, like, don't you have to get your own thinking in order first, right? And start mm. asking serious questions about, well. What are the limits of thinking? What is the nature of thinking itself, right? And that's the critical moment. I think Hegel's problem is that Kant stays there, right? He, he never leaves that critical moment. And, and then you get stuck with just what is internal to thinking as if it were radically separate in some way from the nature of things as they actually are. Yeah, that's right. And so like or the, other, the other sort of like representative that, I've, that I mentioned of, of pre-critical dogmatic rationalist metaphysicians is Leibniz. And if you've read any Leibniz, you know that like his picture of the world and reality is bonkers, yeah. essentially, <laughs> right? It's completely wild. Well, this is why I love it. Don't we all think it's monads without windows? Yeah, it's all, we're all just in, in window, an infinity of windowless monads that makes up the world and they're immaterial substances and this pre-established harmony and it's the best of all possible <laughs> worlds. And it's like, what in the hell are you talking about, right? So then Kant comes along and he's like, whoa, 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 you all, can you please just like slow tell down. me what cognition looks like? Slow the fuck down. Put down um, the drugs. But then like... <laughs> But then, like like Owen said, right, this sort of critical turn is kind of unsatisfying in a lot of ways. And, like, the most representative problem is the thing in itself, right? So, like, I have these representations in Kant where, like, things are given to me in some way. Of, like, my sensibility and receptivity are, are, like, affected by something. What is that something? Don't know. Can't say anything about it, right? <laughs> and so, like, literally, the relationship there's a non relation between appearances and mm. the things that are supposed to be appearing. Because yeah. if I could say what those things were, I'd actually just be talking about how they appear for me, right? I wouldn't actually be talking about the thing in itself. And so, the thing in itself, like, Kant will sometimes be like equals X, like, literally just an unknown, an unknown thing out there. But if we think that, you know, there is something like understanding or knowledge, you're not just like thinking, like, just this weird empty form you're thinking things you're thinking of stuff you're actually cognizing real things in some way but with Kant we we can't actually bridge that gap right mm. and so all of these post-Kantian German idealists are like we need to do this metaphysics we need to be able to talk about what these things are in themselves or what the nature of reality is or what God is or the soul or God yeah. or the soul or freedom right freedom. all of this importance this stuff which means that we have to we have to go beyond like Kant's prohibition, right? With Kant, he says like, okay, we might have these regulative ideals, we might have these sort of these maxims of reflection or whatever, but we can't actually we can't actually talk about freedom uh, being actual or, or you know that like we actually know what things are actually like. And Hegel com comes along and says like, no, yeah, things just are as they appear actually, right? Like to answer your question, Will, like what's the relationship between appearance and reality? Well. It's the nature of this reality for it to appear. That's no longer a story about me cognizing it. It's a story about how reality itself 
becomes this appearance. It's part of what it is for it to appear in this way. And this is already sort of like we're getting a, a little bit at this sort of dialectical negativity. I think a lot about like one of the uh, moments in the science of logic, which I didn't ask you all to read, and I'm really sorry. This is too much. He wrote too many. These books are too long. Yeah. I think we can all yes. agree. Well, he only wrote four um, books. As, yeah. He only wrote four <laughs> books, but they're really hard. <laughs> my, my advisor never tired of telling me this. Hegel only wrote four yeah. books. Don't read those lectures. But I think a lot about this one moment in the science of logic where he's talking about essences, and we think of things having an essence. But then he says, like, if an essence, like, just stayed, like, and we think of the essence as, like, the inner truth of the thing, right? Whatever that means. He's like, but if it actually just stayed inner, then it wouldn't be anything. It wouldn't mean anything. It has to appear. So the line is, essence has to appear. And then, like, what is the essence of the thing? For it to appear in that way. And then what is the appearance of the essence? And that, this is this sort of, like, dialectical mm -hmm. relationship, right? Um, so yeah. with, with Hegel, things never stay themselves, right? They always become their opposite, but that's how they do what their work is. That's how they, that's how they are what they are. So basically, like, you know, if something, if some inner essence, if some, like, you know, you know, the real you, if we want to make it, like, sort of personal, you know, Great something example. like no Great one example. had any, any access to, you know, that was right. you know, merely private. Well, then that, that thing creates no availability for anything else beyond it. In fact, you know, what would it mean to even talk about that if it never makes itself available? And so what right. Hegel is trying to say is that, you know, well, it can't be that there's this, you know, mystical secret that never appears because that actually would never appear for us because it turns out when we're thinking, we're thinking about things that appear for us. And if I can be a little bit, maybe it's not too technical. And so it seems as if Hegel's saying something along the lines of, as I narrate what I am doing when I am thinking, the conditions of my thinking, guess what? You also are actually narrating the conditions of the world itself. Yeah. You're also yeah. narrating what is out there. And so he's able to solve this problem of, well, actually, it turns out you can never actually get locked into your subjectivity. As soon as you're investigating that, you also are investigating the structure of the world. Because if I can say it this way, there's almost a mirroring between the structure of consciousness and the structure of, of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm. maybe it's worth pausing just on that element of what dialectics is for Hegel, right? Because yeah. one of the conventional ways I think dialectics is understood is that it's a kind of method. It has to do with argumentation or it has a kind of method for thinking. Um, and I think for Hegel, that makes it sound as if it's something that we come at the world with and then try to kind of classify, you know, try to impose basically on the order of the world. It's our method for understanding it. And I think he wants to push, well, he wants to push away from that kind of impositionist view of method and say that like the method of dialectic doesn't, dialectic isn't something we come up with just in our cognition, right? It's the actual structure of things. And as a method of thinking, it's a way of tracing the dialectical development, right? The mm -hmm. unfolding through oppositions, right? Of reality itself. Right? So there's a distinction between dialectics at, a, at the level of theory and dialectics at the level of the world, but that distinction is not, um, we shouldn't reify that distinction too much, right? Because dialectics at the level of theory traces actual dialectical unfolding in the world. Yeah, this is, I think, one of like the things that people get wrong most often about dialectics for Hegel. You're, you're exactly right, Owen. He says very clearly in a bunch of places, he's like, if you think by dialectic, we mean like a method that I impose on things, you've missed the point, right? And one of those passages that I, that I asked us to read, this is from 
the encyclopedia. And actually, I do want to I do want us to talk about this. It's really interesting in this part in the encyclopedia. It's it's like sections 79 to 80, uh, 82, where he's like, well, look, all rational content, all rational or logical stuff has three moments. And the first is this abstract moment called the understanding. And then the second is what he calls the dialectical or negatively rational moment. And the third is the speculative or positively rational moment. So that's important because like it means dialectic actually doesn't get the last word for Hegel, which is weird. Most people don't like think about it like that. Mm. Um, but there he says in the in when he's like, okay, what is this dialectical part? He's like, it's when these finite determinations like transcend themselves and they transit we have this transition into opposites. And he says, usually people understand this to be like, you know, an arbitrary external, like, you know, imposition of a certain kind of rational content. He's like, that's not it. That's not it. Right. Like you said, I like the example that you gave to Will about like the real you, right? Like sometimes someone will do something that is like harmful or damaging, right? They like say something that if I say something that hurts your feelings and then I'm like that wasn't really me you know that's not really me you know it like is, the the, yes. Hegeli the Hegelian mo moment here is like no that really was you for sure like there was nothing <laughs> other than you there right you don't get to you don't get to say that there's like an in, in itself of you that's different from how you affect others okay we need to pause here because yeah, I, we need yeah. to pause I, here I, I, really I agree so <laughs> many lot. pauses we need to pause here a lot a lot of pauses <laughs> okay so um, the way I want to pause here is to try to make an intervention that you know, uh, zooms ahead to other people who take up Hegel, and those are people who, who practice something like critical theory. When you know someone does critical theory, Robin D'Angelo, always Robin <laughs> D'Angelo. Like you know, the, 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 you know, at the end of all paths is Robin D'Angelo, arms <laughs> wide open, smiling, saying, "I've been waiting for you." You've heard You're about so the Hegel fragile. to D'Angelo pipeline, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I hear it's yeah. Alfabin, yes, uh, yeah, Jimmy Alfabin, Concepts. Yeah. So when someone does something like critical theory, where they want to say there's something wrong with society, there's something mm -hmm. fucked up with it, they are implicitly saying something like, you know, this society isn't really the way things ought to be. That, you know, this society, there's something false about it. There's that sort of language of we're not living up to our ideals, like, you know, in the mm -hmm. United States, or we're not living up to this notion of, of, of justice. So those imperfections, racism, sexism, that's not really what the United States mm. is about. Those are, <laughs> are, are merely contingent phenomena that don't grasp at this ineffable essence of justice. Hegel would say something along the lines of, no, that makes no sense. You know, right. the, what this thing is, is its movement of appearance. And the reason why I say I want to pause here, because Hegel is a strange bedfellow for those who want to talk about, well, these contradictions in reality say there's some imperfection. When what Hegel seems to actually be saying, something along the lines of, no, the movement of philosophy understands that things are the way that they are. Yeah. In fact... Um, maybe this will be controversial. I don't know other people's interesting readings of Hegel. Philosophy actually leaves things as they are. It merely you know, comes to comprehend you know, this is the truth of their appearance. And so what Hegel takes away is this notion of, you know, like, like Gill's example, that wasn't really me, is no, no, no. All is apparent. All is appearing. That is what it is. And what you need to do is to grasp that in its yeah. truth, rather than disavow it and say, no, like, that's not part of this. That's not part of this. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so I don't know if that that helped at all, but yeah. Yeah, no. I think yeah, it, okay. it does help, but I actually just want to take another step back because we kept saying all this stuff about essence and appearance, and to be honest, it's not that clear for me still. So mm-hmm. we have this pre-critical metaphysics that was going on before Kant. Kant comes around and he's like, we need to think about what it is that reason is doing. We need to reflect on reason itself as opposed to making assertions about the nature of reality, which is what metaphysics does, by the way. So you're talking about what's the nature of reality? What is real? And then Kant sets up some problems and then Hegel comes in and he tries to solve Kant's problems. And one of the ways that he tries to solve those problems is like the the problem of the antinomies and the limits of reason is he's saying that Kant has fundamentally misunderstood the relationship between reason or maybe even what philosophy is doing to the world that it's trying to understand. So like what you get when you read Hegel is what I always think about when I finish reading some of these chapters is I feel like Hegel's given me a little experience in what it is like to think. And he's trying to like tell philosophers that you need to come to terms with both the speculative nature of thought, but also like the strangely, even though he's down to speculate a lot about the the appearances as as they are, like Will was saying, mm-hmm. he's also okay with some pretty obvious limits to philosophy. So if what philosophy is doing is kind of reconstructing like the the appearance of the world to the philosopher, then like the philosopher can only be a reflection of like a movement of history. And so there is so like that is a certain limit to reason in a way that um, even Kant, like Kant doesn't put that particular Mm. limit on reason. Mm -hmm. Hegel does. Hmm. I think that's exactly right. And I have like, I've thought about this a lot because like, you know, say what you will about Kant. I think you do get a really strong normative or like ethical project in Kant. And it's because he thinks that we can talk about oughts in this very strong way. Right. I can, I can like talk about like what I ought to do and what you ought to do. And I can look at the world and say, there's like, you know, it ought to be other than the way it is in terms of freedom or what have you justice. But Hegel, Hegel kind of evacuates the ought, right? Spinoza. In this really strong way, so. in a very Spinozist, yep. in a weird Spinozist way. Yep. So that, like, as you said, like, you know, the job of philosophy for Hegel is, like, I like the way you put it, it's this rational reconstruction, right? He wants to say that, like, look, there already is a rational structure to things, right? Things actually already do follow reasons. The job of philosophy is to reconstruct them and to give that structure give 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 rational form in like articulated discursive thought that was already there in the thing and this is what he talked when he talks about method he always says like you just have to like follow the determinations of the thing in itself right which which we have access to implicit to explicit does that making it explicit exactly he says calls it making it conscious making it conscious yeah exactly Mm -hmm. right so that he says at the end of the preface and this preface to the philosophy of right is like incredible oh yeah it's an amazing text but he says all this stuff about how like you know what's the task of philosophy it's to um you know he says philosophy is the exploration of the rational so for that reason it's just the comprehension of the present and the actual not the setting up of a world beyond 
which exists God knows where, mm-hmm. or rather, which we could definitely know, we say we're, we know where it exists, just in the imagination. He's like, great, you imagined a, a different world. Cool, thanks, Plato. What mm-hmm. about this one, right? And then at the end of the preface, he even says, like, people always ask philosophers to, like, give instructions. And he says, philosophy always comes too late on the scene to perform this function, mm-hmm. right? And this is the famous Owl of Minerva line. He says, the Owl of Minerva begins its flight only with the onset of dusk. He says, it's the thought of the world. So it appears only at a time when actuality has gone through its formative process and attained its completed state. So, like, I think you're right. There's almost no, there's almost no future in Hegel, right? All is retrospective, right? Looking back and trying to come to terms with what's come before, which is, like, this really, I don't know, d- this really deep way in which, like, all thought and all philosophy becomes historical for him. Okay. But like, I do think we lose the ought and the future. I was just going to say really quickly, because another line from the preface that caught me, and this is, you know, because he has long sentences, he's German. But, you know, yeah, he's German. You know, he you know, has a fraction of the line where he goes, so that for this reason alone, we should be at peace with actuality. And this struck me because, you know, the type of Hegel mm-hmm. that I was given coming through grad school is, you know, a Hegel that, you know, people like pump all this revolutionary politics into. Oh, and for you know, sure. for in my head, the Hegel that uh-huh. lived in my head is like, this is the man who's like, you know, who came to save us in all of that. This is the <laughs> man who can allow us to talk about freedom bursting forth and it needs to burst forth. And but actually the text of Hegel, he's saying you know, if that's something that happens, philosophy is the wrong place to look for it. Honestly, mm-hmm. when reading this, this is my favorite pop cultural reference. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about uh, Marlo Stanfield from The Wire, where this uh, this drug oh, dealer is yeah. talking to him and all that. And he just, he just keeps saying, you want to be one way. You want to be one way. And the guy goes, <laughs> stop saying that. Stop saying that. And then Marlo just takes out his life and goes, but it's the other way. But it's and then the he other just walks way. And uh, all of a sudden, just like, oh my God, Marlowe, the Hegelian thinker of necessity. Marlowe is Hegelian. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You can, you can invent all these possibilities of what should be. I believe there's also another place in the encyclopedia where Hegel's like, is there anything more empty than abstract possibility? Yeah, I <laughs> guess you could imagine all sorts of things. I'm not sure what that tells you. And so, you right. know, it's as if Hegel is saying, philosophy, what is it doing? dipping into these possibilities of the world should look like this, the world should look like that. And maybe this can help us to start talking about what Hegel's doing with the state when he's saying, mm-hmm. no, 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 what you are doing is documenting, documenting how it is mm-hmm. and you know, getting people to reconcile themselves to the way it always already was. And if you think you're doing something else, then I've got news for you. You're, you've missed the boat because... What is actual is rational, and what is rational is actual. Yeah, I like. I don't know if you all remember this, but like maybe ten years ago in continental philosophy, there was like a real, there was like a spate of like there was lots of papers being presented and lots of sort of like talk about like everyone's favorite phrase was like things could be otherwise, right? And like all of critical theory was like centered on this idea, and like lots of like sort of you know, insisting on the contingency of things, right? right. Things could be otherwise. Oh my God, and the I obsession just, with novelty, it was so the obsession annoying. obsession with the new, <laughs> I know, and the different, and I always just thought like... The event. The event, right? Like the, the event could happen at any time and then everything would be different. And <laughs> I always was just like, I guess, I guess things could be otherwise. They're not. So like maybe we should try to figure out what is, you know, if okay. things are this way, they have to be this way for a reason. Can we get to grips with that? Like just asserting abstract possibility is like always trivially true and not very interesting. 
Mm. Okay, but I, can I pause this one more time? Because yeah. there was one more thing I wanted to before we... Could we call this episode The Pause. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> before we get to the politics stuff in the state, I just want to back up. There's one more thing, Gil, you mentioned um, this distinction between the understanding, right, on the one hand, yeah. right, dialectics or negation, right, and then the speculative. Because if we're talking about comprehending the world as it is, and we're making claims about how it is, right, and rather than how it ought to be, right, um, I think we should... Uh, we should kind of, you know, zone in for a second on this concept of speculation because I think that is for Hegel what it means to actually—I uh, hate to use the word understand now—but it means to actually grasp in thought, right? To render explicit, discursively, to grasp in thought the way things are. So he says mm -hmm. that uh, this is an amazing claim: everything true, in so far as it is comprehended, can be thought of only speculatively. Everything true, right? Insofar as we can possibly comprehend it, can be thought, I'm sorry, what? Can be thought of only <laughs> speculatively. Only speculatively. So what the hell is the speculative uh, for Hegel? And I think that's something that we should just discuss before we move on. And I just want to say one thing about it, which about the, okay. the kind of contrast with the understanding, right? It seems to me that he's trying through this contrast between the understanding and the speculative to push us beyond Kant, which yeah. he seems to be doing a lot of the time. Because he seems to be identifying the understanding... Uh, with the Kantian understanding, which is the kind of categories of the categories of thinking. And so at least my impression is that the understanding is that part of cognition, that mode of our thought, which breaks things into kind of discrete elements, right? treats them as discrete, separate, independent element entities, and then talks about their relation, discuss, you know, tries to frame their relation to one another. Whereas the speculative vantage seems to want to look at the relationship between seemingly opposed or seemingly differentiated things and to see them like under the aspect of their relational element, right? Under the aspect mm -hmm. of their relatedness rather than under the aspect of their discrete identity. So just as quick examples, like freedom and authority, for example, right? Or freedom and right, since we looked at the introduction of the philosophy of right. Freedom and right seem to be discrete. The understanding, right? The only German word I'll use, I promise, uh, Verstand-Erkenntnis, right? Understanding knowing, the, the way of understanding things, that that mode of cognition looks at freedom and like right and authority as discrete opposites, right? And mm -hmm. somehow we need to figure out how to bring them into relation to one another. How can we impose authority on this thing, this other separate thing called freedom? Whereas the speculative view is ultimately going to say that freedom and right are actually imminent to one another. Right? And you right. have to, if you trace the unfolding of the concept of freedom, you interrogate that concept. You will arrive at right, a, con a robust conception of right all the way up to the state. Right? Okay, yeah, yeah I want to talk about this because... Moments. I went the, on too long, I'm sorry. No, 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 you didn't. The, because of, I think the imminent thing is important. So something that somebody said earlier, I forget that the, the, the interesting thing about Hegel is that what people take away from Hegel is that dialectic is like, that's what we know about him. He's like a, the Hegelian dialectic. But for Hegel, it seems that dialectic is actually just one moment of, the, of what we need to understand. It's actually not what philosophy is doing. And it's not, not like pointing out the dialectical moment, which is like the progression of finite moments that kind of like seem different, but then you've put them together in their relation and you see, okay, freedom and authority, they, mm -hmm. they're there together and they need each other. And actually they, um, they, they kind of sublate in, into one another and they, they change, they, they, there's a, a reliance there and you have to see its historical shape. There's that moment of relation 
that people tend to, to focus on as being the dialectical moment where it's like, look, there's a contradiction, but actually they need each other. And like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. and so like, but that's just one part of it. There's this additional step that Hegel thinks is important, which is apprehending these oppositions in this more like speculative way. And I want to understand what the speculation is. Like, what is the understanding that's different than just pointing that out and like pointing out those oppositions and contradictions in their relation? It seems like he think he wants to take us like one step beyond noticing those things. And it seems like imminence, we have to see the development and imminent progression of, I don't want to use like, uh, of the active of our own rationality like that. And I don't under always understand what people mean by imminence, but it seems important because the last episode where, where we were talking about the difference between what Kant is doing and the, what a critique can be in its negative mode or in its imminent mode. And I think that Hegel is like the mo- the philosopher that's like going to make imminent critique a thing and that will matter for mm-hmm. to like telescope to Marx and and the critical theory tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to pick up on some of the, one of the things you said there at least. So, let's stick with an example of like what what Owen was just saying like free freedom, right? And so the Kantian the Kantian language for this that we have is autonomy on the one hand and heteronomy on the other, right? Where autonomy is where I I freely determine myself, I give myself the law, and I'm I'm heteronomously determined. There's I am subject to heteronomy when something else is compain, constraining or compelling me in some way. I'm subject to someone or something else. And now, like, the apparent opposition between these two is clear, right? The abstract understanding is like, well, I'm either autonomous or heteronomous, right? Only one of those things. And then the sort of dialectical moment and this sort of progression moment is actually the way in which I'm autonomous is via the establishment of these things called the state, which for me subjectively feels like heteronomy, but which objectively is like the condition and means of my autonomy. And the speculative moment is holding that together as a positive result of this thinking, right? It's no longer just that there's this contradiction, but that we have like a positive claim that comes about from the unity of these of these contradictory oppositions, right? And so like, I struggle with this too, Lillian, because I sometimes think I'm like, all right, I think I, I, think I see how this third step is different than the second, right? Mm-hmm. Like speculative moment, positive content. And sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like I just got stuck at the dialectical moment where I like see the unity of opposites or something. Some other language that people use to talk about uh, dialectic in Hegel is of the negation of the negation, right? And like, this is like a version of that where like, in the preface to the philosophy of right, one of the clearest examples that we get of this is when he thinks about like the I. Right? Like everybody says I when they are speaking of themselves. Every I is this uni- it's a universal abstract thing, right? Everyone says I, and it's kind of, you know, this unlimited abstract universality. But also whenever I say I, I mean me in particular, as this concrete determinate person, me, right? And he says the unity of these two. Right, is what we mean by individuality or personality. Right, That it's a determinate content, a positive existing thing that is also universal. And sort of trying to like hold together universality and particularity is something like what he means by the speculative or third moment, I think. Um, okay, so this is also something I, I'm, I'm confused about, but you know, I'm going to try to like you know, build off of this. So 
let's like try to just ask like you know, the big abstract question of you. Know, so why does Hegel want us doing this in the first place? So I get the sort of abstract. Well, you know, we don't mm. want to give up on metaphysics and kind of kind of harsh our cool, but we're you know <laughs> we're not gonna let him kill the vibe. All right, right. but you know, but he was kind of smart, so we're not gonna go back. And when I when I'm thinking about the speculative moment, you know, it, it it seems to me that you know with Hegel, it's it's as if you know at first we think that there are these you know sort of um wounds in existence, this alienation, and you know when we get to the speculative moment of bringing this unity of opposites together, I'm wondering if this is you know almost you know, rationally reconstructing so that these wounds are healed now, so it no longer feels um, or appears, you know maybe we don't want to use the language of feels, no longer appears as this tension that I have to hold together, but now I understand that oh no these belong. And I think you know that's what the concept does. The concept mm -hmm. allows me to actually grasp this, and so that you know, I think on the live session we did, you know, someone offered the idea that now I'm a Chrissy Warren to Hegel is a thinker of love. I think of I thought he was the thinker of heartbreak, but no, it seems like for Hegel, when you get to the speculative moment, you're no longer in heartbreak anymore. You now have bound those wounds together. Reconciliation. That, you know, uh, yeah. This reconciliation. Now they are together. Now it's no longer, how do I do the universal in the particular? How can I be an individual yet a citizen? And Hegel's be like, love. When you do this. I'm skeptical of this. this. No. You know, that won't seem to be a problem for you anymore. Once you no. actually grasp Sorry. it. <laughs> I mean, no. I'm not saying I'm saying this is this is the right way. I'm just saying that this seems to be like where it goes. You know? But that goes against what we said before, which is like placing the thinking subject in the progression of history. So like I when I'm asking about this it gets at the question of what imminence is for Hegel, like the imminent progression of rational thought's own self-activity. The fact that you're always, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk and you're always reconstructing. I don't think the moment of disalienation ever arrives. Like, because you're always going to mm. like reflect on it and you're going to reconstruct it, but history is kept moving. And like that anxiety you get when you read Hegel and you're like, but do I ever get the there, there? You never get the essence of the thing in, th in thought. Like, you can't be disalienated. I mean... That's great. Yeah. I don't know. So my only response I to that, though, you. is that... Yeah. I'll just say this real quick. My only response to that is that, you know, it seems that with Hegel, there are always these two viewpoints going on, though. There's, you know, mm. consciousness actually going through this in history. And at least with the phenomenology, there's the, the sort of transubjective perspective that's witnessing all the struggle and strife. And at this point, knows where it's going. Knows like, oh, like mm. when you're going through that, that seems, it seems arbitrary, it seems contingent, it seems like it'll never make any sense. But then, you know, the hyperview, it's like, no, this is the necessary shape and the necessary movement. And so I wonder if there's supposed to be some sort of rational piece there of, you know, being actually able to see that this isn't contingent, that this is a necessary movement, even if those experiencing it, it's not that. So I want to say two things here. One of them is that. I think you're right, Lillian. It might actually be the case that the moment of reconciliation never finally arrives, right? Like, you know, we have this image of Hegel as like, you know, he is an idealist. He is an 
absolute idealist, right? And, you know, all of his books end, you know, with like, you get to the end of the, ph- the phenomenology of spirit. It's like, well, here we are. Absolute spirit comically dusts off hands, yeah. right? Like the, the, the true and the actual are one, right? Or and the you get philosophy to the end. of right, right? Like uh, we get to the end. It's like, yeah. hey, constitutional monarchy. We made it. <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> yeah, nailed it. <laughs> the best. At the end of the science of logic. You're welcome, like, Prussia. Guys, <laughs> the, the science of logic is like figured it out we have the absolute idea which is the unity of the true and the good and it's like what the fuck is happening but like i think you're right that these are like these look then like closed systems with end points that are like this is the end but i think that like the, the sort of spirit the movement of his thought is like this is a kind of open totality it never is closed right it's it, there's sort of the work of this dialectical negativity the production and generation of new conflicts that will need to be later resolved. Like, that seems like an endless or ongoing thing. I don't see it as, like, you know, we get to the end of the, the, the science logic. It's like, oh, I guess the true is the good. We're done. Like, I guess we can pack it up. Right? I kind of see it if as If only this, uh, the rest of the world had yeah. read the science of logic. If yeah, only everybody would be great, logic, baby. We're here. Like Lenin. Like Lenin did. Exactly. Uh, but then the, and then the other thing that I wanted to say is that, you know, Will, I think you asked the question of, like, okay, but wh- why, why? Why do this philosophy thing then if this is the sort of story we're getting? And there was one line from the preface to the philosophy of right that I liked here. He's talking about, uh, you know, reason as this self-consciousness. And then he's like, this, there's a relationship between, like, rational thought and the actual, an actuality, right? And he says, what lies between reason as self-conscious spirit and reason as present actuality, right? There's something, that, there's something holding these apart, right? Self-conscious spirit and actuality. What is it? What separates the former from the latter and prevents it from finding satisfaction in it is the fetter of some abstraction or other, mm-hmm. which has not been liberated into the concept. So, like, he thinks that, like, part of the reason we should do this rational reconstruction, this sort of, like, philosophical labor, is because it shows us where our abstractions are getting in our own way, right? And preventing us from, like, living, uh, living out, making actual this in, in a fully robust way, something like freedom. Or, or reason, right? And so, like, he wants us to, like, do this work to sort of hone in on these abstractions that, you know, mostly are just from this abstract understanding and which are, like, blocking us from understanding ourselves properly or actualizing ourselves properly, I think. That's a pitch, at least. You know what's funny? Yeah. Uh, obviously, I, I think eventually we are going to end up doing a psychoanalysis episode. I can see uh. how Freud would gear into this and think, ah, now that's interesting, but now we just need to burr in more internally, though, uh, in <laughs> essence. Like, you know, so what's going on here? And I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to turn this into a Freud episode, but at least a reading of Freud is that, you know, Freud, you know, the end of Freudian psychoanalysis isn't now go out there and change the world. It is now you can actually be at peace with what this is. Now, obviously, for Freud, it's not going to turn out that the real is rational. I, I don't think that that's where it goes. But you know, this labor is undoing, getting yourself uh, out of the sort of the, the bad infinity of things just happen and happen and happen and allowing you to actually come to grips with reality or come to terms with it. At least, yeah. I mean, you can see where uh, there's an obvious political and ideological valence to this, right? The idea of reconciling yourself to the kind of to the reality within which you find yourself by by ascending to a kind of speculative view of it. Like Hegel, you know, <laughs> does this explicitly with uh, in later on in the philosophy of right with the problem of poverty, right? Which he says mm-hmm. is like a necessary outcome of bourgeois civil society. 
right? It's 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 inevitable at a certain point you might have like crops that fail. There are different fluctuations and in instability in the market, and so you're going to end up with people that are poor, right? And so he says that the the real risk though is not that there are poor people, but that you have the formation. Which that's fine. That's so fine. far that's fine. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. As long as they are still kind of spiritually bought into, like as long as they still feel themselves within the kind of what he calls ethical life, right? Within the normative and cultural texture of their society, as long as they still feel like a part of it, that's okay. The real risk is not poverty. It's if you have a if a rabble forms the rabble, right? and yeah. so and so soon, and when rabble. you get to the rabble, the issue with them is that it's not only that they're poor, right? Ob the, objectively, the situation with the rabble and people that are poor is exactly the same, but there's a subjective mm -hmm. difference, which is they are, they are no, no. He says they are disaffected with right, like they are disaffected yeah. with the social totality. Like that they They're are alienated from, alienated the, from the it. notion of right itself. Yeah. And his response to it is just hilariously inadequate and like undialectical. It's just like, okay, like we need to make sure that there are certain kind of welfare programs in place here. And like, we got to do a few things to stop them from, you know, some elements of bildung have to be deployed to like, yeah. Yeah. Education is, is education. Important. Yeah. yeah. So the, yeah. So the problem is when you don't see the world actually as reflecting back and expressing you, your, yeah. your will that you are actually, you know, co-constitutive with the world, the, the, the pain is when the world seems like it's this nightmare that you know, is getting thrown on me. I'm like, I have nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. I didn't choose this. I didn't choose to be poor or I didn't choose to be X or I didn't choose to live under a Prussian monarchy. Mm -hmm. And Hegel, I think partially these lectures are like, okay, so we need to actually start educating consciousness to understand that no, this does reflect your will. It's just <laughs> your misunderstanding. Like, yo, the problem, look, like straight up Hegel yeah. saying, the problem is you, boo-boo. Like, yeah. this is the issue. <laughs> yeah. You keep having fire for the state. No. no. The state is sweetie. here. You just the got here yesterday. You. The state so is you. Is, yeah, you keep you keep looking at the opposite of like therapeutic. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could oh my see God. how Hegel might think it's therapeutic though. Yeah. Can you imagine the psychic damage? Like, no, no, I know things are rough, but this, trust me, the state is not like an an alienating extrinsic force in your oh life. My God. It actually is an expression of you. It's you. It's like, oh, <laughs> Fuck, really? I feel like God this is what it. makes me think all philosophers just like are borderline like obsessive compulsive personalities. Like imagine <laughs> this kind of mind. I really can't. I yeah, like amazing. Freud would have a fucking field day with him. Because like, because I actually think the contrast with psychoanalysis is helpful because if you were to think, and I think some people have tried to think about psychoanalysis dialectically or like if you were to think about it in a Hegelian way like a the, the therapeutic process and microcosm part of that like it actually does sort of make sense because what one does when one is with the analyst is that you reconstruct your personal history whether you're mm. reconstructing a truth like a there there or not like the essence of oneself that's immaterial right you you reconstruct symbols memories whatever and you stitch together a story and what happens in the process of doing that is that you reconstruct it, but then the self that was there to be reconstructed is no longer there, right? So like, it's kind mm. of like the, the personality becomes the, the move, the movement of the therapy is like the movement of history. You know, like I can imagine you creating that mm -hmm. analogy, except for, 
I do feel like instead of having that kind of, I guess the difference is that psychoanalysis is like trying to get you to change to like open up possibilities <laughs> and like Hegel is trying to get you to change to like recognize everything is fine just as it is. Yeah, he's trying to yeah, like, yeah. Like, like, the change into the same. But actually <laughs> no, I don't know. Okay, so God, right. I'm gonna get in so much trouble because I have such a yes. I have such a I have such a problem with psychoanalysis. But because I, I feel like I this think whole episode's gonna get us in trouble, Gil. God, we're this Oh is, yeah. Okay. Like this might be our greatest mistake. I <laughs> love okay, it. Though. This is yeah. But this is the thing, though. I'm I'm worried sometimes that the psychoanalytic aim is, in fact, reconciliation, right? In just this sort of conservative, like, anti-activist sense. Or at least right? that's that, like, how you've seen its I practical effects. Like, I've unfold. seen... Un- yeah. th- this is, yeah, exactly. Okay, I so mean, stay who, tuned who knows? to figure out if yeah. psychoanalysis is more like yes. Marxism or more like Hegelianism. <laughs> In our next episode. <laughs> and to be very clear, those are the only two options. Those are the yeah. two Again, kinds of As the of great philosopher Marlowe are. said, you want to be one way, but it's the but other. It's the other like, way. That's it. That's it. <laughs> but this is totally true. Like, I do want to just, like, like emphasize, sit on this and emphasize this for yeah. a second. Like, because of its retrospective character, because of its emphasis on, like, finding the rational in every shape of actuality, like, there is no activist thought in Hegel at all, right? It is anti, I mean, and it's gonna be interesting when we do our, our episode on Marx following this, how do we get to like revolutionary militancy from Hegelian philosophy, which is like what Marx somehow pulls off, I think, right? Because it is like in its very bones conservative, right? Like it's justificatory. It looks at the state and says, this must in fact be rational. Let's figure out how, let's like, let's It let's, must like, be tell because it's actual. Because it's actual, mm-hmm. so we yeah. need to like figure out how to reconstruct the story that gives the proof of the rationality of the existing state of affairs. Certainly, we're not going to like try to abolish it or something. That would be crazy. I mean, or at least like you know, so maybe to you know, if there, are, I, I know we definitely have Hegelians listening. At least the claim can't be. <laughs> we're very it sorry. Be, yeah, are we being unkind? <laughs> I, I have a hard time seeing at how we are. Like we have literally quoted him line for line, saying things like, you know, just come to terms with actuality. Stop trying to jump over your own shadow. You know you can't do that. At least it cannot be that it will be the philosophers who are the ones who are going to abolish the state or call for it. You know, whether whether it could be the case, I don't think Hegel's personal politics would allow for this. Whether it could be the case in the movement of history, it's revealed that the state is yet another sort of finite, limited form that actually can't bring these relations together. Perhaps that's an open question. I think Hegel would say, like, you, you know, shut up. Like, <laughs> did, did you read the philosophy of right? Did like, you, you I did that. But I think you know the, we're talking specifically about the philosopher. The philosopher is not a militant. The philosopher. See now is I'm a definitely not an act. Now I'm like ready <laughs> wow, to go. Wow, that was a now, quick turnaround. See yeah. now I'm like, if if we just spin it around, we're like it's not about the rabble. It's about the philosopher because the whole world is just a reflection of ourselves. I'm sold. That's what philosophers <laughs> do. No problem. <laughs> good. Good. <laughs> and like, I, I love that Lily's like, oh yeah, episode of success. Oh, wait, I got oh, wait, it. That's right. Oh, that's oh wait, true. that's correct. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wait, that's good. Yeah. Because it is, it is very funny, right? Like the end of the philosophy of right, and like I like this book. I think this is the funniest of his books in a certain way, because like 
look, like the science logic is. <laughs> yeah, he's not yeah. a comedian. He's not like no. he's not trying to tell jokes, really. Um, but like, like you know, the science of logic. He's like, all right, we're going to try to think the concepts in the cat. We're going to try to unfold all of the categories of like thinking from this abstract notion called being onward, and like that doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it's got a history, right? In the same way, right? Like we're gonna t when we talk about like I don't know these ideas of like essence or limit determinacy, quality, quantity, these don't seem to be like historical. And in fact, he says in the preface wildly, he's like, what follows this book is basically the, stru the structure of the mind of God before creation. It's like, wow, yeah. I'm so, I'm happy for you that you <laughs> think you can do this. I love to see it. So, so true, <laughs> We love bestie. to see it. But then, it's so true, bestie. But then like you read the philosophy of right and it's like, and he's like, everyone sit down. I conferred with the concept of freedom it says we're going to need cops and corporations and juries are going to have to have so many people on them. And it's like, and we have that I don't monarchy, know, but it has to be hereditary. Uh, or hereditary else it doesn't constitutional fit the idea. monarchy. Yeah. It's like, this seems way more contingent and like historically informed yeah. than these other texts in this important way, Wh which I just think is very funny. Like in, in concept, I think it's hilarious. Like, and, and again, like someone yeah. like complains about the world to Hegel, right? And says like, actually, I don't think we should have constitutional or hereditary monarchs. He's like, listen, I talked to the concept of, of right, okay? And <laughs> like, did you? Definitely, I don't think you did. Did you? Exactly. What's really interesting, and I think it's important to say for our, our, our listeners, you know, because I think you're right, Gil, that there's something constitutionally conservative in Hegel. And I, I, I think, you know, it's not just his political positions, but that, Reality isn't marked by any irrationality that needs to be, you know, kind of undone or taken away. It really is about the redescription and making explicit of what social reality already is. And it's almost as if it's counseling, social reality should be enough. This should be enough. Why, you know, are you trying to, you know, uh, invent wholly new social realities? This is what you are, and this is all that you can come to grasp. And so I wonder if it also has a way of sort of limiting political desires or political expectations that, you know, it's a sort of call to come to realize that this is enough, that this is what it is. Well, you as, as somebody who's interested in utopia, you pretty much couldn't find a more anti-utopian thinker uh, oh, if, absolutely, if, if, absolutely if not. Try. No, uh, yeah. Hegel, Hegel had my number. You know, Hegel's yeah, exactly. just like, this guy in the future is going to talk about going someplace else. Now, honestly, yeah. the real Hegel would be like, sir, uh, aren't you from Africa? <laughs> um, history Excuse didn't me. move there, yeah. sir. I have bad news. Trapped you have had no history. In the understanding. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the even just picture, th picture thinking. <laughs> Where's your picture books? Look at yeah. you trying to write, <laughs> sir. Try <laughs> trying to be a, what a monster. Oh my god. Yeah, Fuck. that's funny because he does have Brutal. the whole thing about world history. Um, so I do. Maybe it, it would be helpful to talk about like there are levels to the conservatism. I made the joke about like, well, if it's just about philosophy, it's more amenable to myself, but. I do think that there is something interesting in what he's saying about the limits of philosophy specifically. And I do think it's worth taking it seriously because we have this paradigm now of the public intellectual activist philosopher that like, I think he would just think is 
not true. Like there's a way in which philosophy sometimes thinks it's doing something. And I used to think, I used to think that, and I'm increasingly less convinced that that's so, but I, I don't have any particular conclusions about what I think the limits are or whatever. But I think that sometimes we take it for when we say, how can we imagine novelty? How can we imagine this? Like, Mm -hmm. what are we doing? We're just like philosophers in a seminar room and we're like reconstructing norms and shit. Like we're not, what does it matter whether we can imagine novelty or not? And what, and what does it matter whether or not we like, who is this? And, and so there's a way in which he seems to think that philosophy is important to history and to politics, and to all of these things, there's a place for it. It's not we're not just twiddling our thumbs. We're reconstruct. We're we're developing the the progression of our own spirit, our own ideas, and no one else is going to do that because they're busy doing all the other things. So we actually have a role to play in the social reproduction of society. And I think that that's mm. kind of an interesting thing to think about philosophically. But I think that the step beyond that, which is like, can anyone else? engage in that kind of reflective behavior besides philosophers is like a deep, perhaps a a different level of potential conservatism in Hegel. And then there's another question of like, is it desirable for everyone else to engage in in philosophy? philosophy? Like other people do things. That's good. They don't have to be engaging in speculative metaphysics maybe, but then you set up this kind of like elitist paradigm of the philosopher, like reflecting on the world. So I I think that part of it, because he's talking about what is it like to think, what is it like to do philosophy? There's actually something really specific going on here where he's trying to tell philosophy about itself as a Mm -hmm. thing that human society does. And that is could be interpreted in different ways with the other kinds of conservatism that you were talking about with the, with the rabble, which I think also exists. It's just saying something somewhat different. I mean, I'm sympathetic with restricting, with restricting or philosophy in, or at least, at least kind of forcing it to have some humility, but I don't think, you know, I don't think you, for example, Lillian think that what philosophy should do should be to ultimately like rationally justify the actual, right? Should ra- ra- it should be like a process like you want to change it. And so do I in certain ways, right? And like, I think we should be more reflective about the ways that that desire informs our thinking because yeah, that's maybe not actually the job of philosophy. So it's a bit of a, like, you see what I mean? It's a bit of a bind there, at least even for me just personally, between the fact that I, I do in a certain sense think Hegel's right, that there is something about, there's something fundamental about philosophy which involves clarifying um, elements of social reality, uh, reconstructing them so as to understand them in a more systematic way, as to understand how all the elements of our, of our history and our society hang together rather than just being kind of discrete moments that have nothing to do with one another. Like, I think that's actually a really great vocation in a lot of ways for philosophy, but the element of it which is justifying you know, trying to justify the way things are to actually make it to actually, you know, not just to reconstruct it and say, okay, this is what, how things have imminently unfolded, but this is how they, like, this is, this is good. Like, trust me, like, this is, this is great. Well, there's the, there's the is ought collapse again, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there, there is no ought outside of, outside of what is so that like rational, the rational reconstruction just is what it means to justify the existing state of affairs. Hmm. But like, to go back to something you brought up a lot earlier, a long time 
a long time ago, 10 years ago, when we started this episode, <laughs> um, <laughs> Lillian, like thinking about imminent critique, like, you know, we could then as Hegelians, I think, look like in a slightly different mode or at like a, a shift in perspective, look at existing society and say, actually, no, this does not, this does not amounts to an actualization of freedom mm -hmm. in a sufficiently robust way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it we don't have the to... the very thing is trying to actualize. Right, yeah. And we don't need to say, oh, and it turns out that, like, freedom and its opposite are, you know, the, the same, so we're good. Or, you know, do this, like, a, a false dialectical reconciliation or something. I think that we also can say, like, Marx will, and for a variety of, and at a variety of other levels, like, no, actually, like, the sort of systematic unfolding of the philosophy of right, he was wrong. He was wrong. You know, he got some things wrong. And so, for instance, like, you know, the version of this account that says, well, in order for freedom to work, we're going to need, we're going to need corporations. Like, maybe he got that wrong. And it should remain for us an open question to try to determine, you know, I think that for, for, I think for a lot of us, for most of us, right? Like, Freedom, the actualization of freedom, still pretty good as a goal, right? That does seem to be like something we should be after. And like social <laughs> critique often, I think, departs from the premise that like, yeah, freedom is the thing that we want and we ain't got it yet, right? Yeah. And so like figuring out how and why that's the case. One like um, thing that's amenable to kind of progressive politics in general that, that Hegel did was to say that, was to just say that like the actualization of freedom is an inherent part of freedom itself. Like freedom as an empty abstraction is meaningless. Just to say like, oh, mm. I'm free. Even like uh, I was thinking of Sartre's assertion of his being free even in prison or something, right? Like <laughs> Hegel's saying, no, no, actually in order, for free, in order to actually be free, there have to be objective conditions which actually, you know, which meet the, the kind of needs of, the, of of freedom, which actually enable freedom to to realize itself in the world, to become concrete, instead of just being a kind of instead of just being a kind of mental abstraction, and so like, I mean that's not that's not you're not that far at that moment from like okay well what are these conditions what are these objective <laughs> conditions which are required for freedom to <laughs> actually be realizable okay it turns out it's not hereditary constitutional monarchy with a robust police <laughs> and a set of corporations and guilds and stuff it turns out it's something like full <laughs> communism right like well, it turns out it's communism <laughs> it turns out right. it's communism yeah. right <laughs> wait wait i i, I want to slow down just you i don't want to leave the question of you um so what is the philosopher's relationship either to the state or society as a whole? So what's interesting here is that, you know, the Hegelian philosopher strikes me as rather different than, you know, the sort of uh, historical metaphor we get of Socrates. Socrates is out there giving representatives of the state a hard time, being like, I don't know, man. It feels like you all actually don't know what it is that you said that you knew. And the right. Hegelian philosopher doesn't strike me as someone who's like next to the prince and being like, can I ask you some questions about virtue? And like, you know, in that sort of dialectic, in that sort of uh, Socratic dialectic of, I think we need to come to the point where you don't actually know what it is that you thought that you knew. And so I think we could do a really grounded materialist analysis of, so what is this thing that we call the public intellectual? At one point, mm -hmm. did the public intellectual become someone who sort of launders for the public? And at what point was, the, was it, or mm -hmm. could it be, again, the public intellectual is someone who tries to incite, provoke, you know, stir public sentiment, stir a public realization. But that ambivalence here, I think we're missing that there has been a remarkable transition, you know, obviously from Socrates to Hegel, but this is a particular frame of the philosopher's position um, as vis-a-vis -vis the state or, or society. 
And it's striking me that Hegel's not giving us a picture of the philosopher as being sort of a contrary angle to society. The Mm -hmm. philosopher is one who is saying, let me make explicit what this is. And so that you all can form and shape yourselves to understanding what this is rather than provoking and bringing towards a sort of aporia of my God, this does not make sense. The tricky thing, right, is that like he maybe takes imminence so seriously as like a as a restriction on like how rigorous thought has to work that he can't be critical in an important way, right? Like he thinks any move to step outside of what exists to criticize it is illegitimate, which means that like arbitrary. the the sort it'll end up being arbitrary, restrictive, right? Again, we're back doing our like you know our, our imaginary abstractions, like ooh, great, you know, you imagined communism, cool. Again, we live in this world. What are you talking about? But also, like, there are weird moments. There are other weird things, though, in Hegel that I think might be interesting to to think about. Like, what does it mean that, like, he sees Napoleon and he's like, that's world spirit on horseback, right? Like, there are these, like, moments of, like, sympathy with revolutionary transformation or of, like, you know, his critique of the beautiful soul is this person who, like, doesn't ever want to get their hands dirty. And he's like, baby, you got to get out there and act. Stop that, right? Like, mm-hmm. there are these, like, you know, peculiar moments of, like, sympathy. I think it's just the case, to answer your question, Will, that for, he- for Hegel himself, our man was just a nerd. He's not actually out there trying to get anything done, right? <laughs> he, he, had, he had work to do called writing those four impenetrable books, um, <laughs> right? But it's and not clear to me that... Yeah, yeah. He, he is a public intellectual mm-hmm. in some way, right? He's giving these, like, lectures to a, to a public, and he thinks that it's important that he does so. To Kierkegaard it's very, and lots of different... <laughs> yeah, to people like Kierkegaard and Marx and so on. So it's, it's, a, it's a complicated picture, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think that, like, philosophy should just be in the business of, like, justifying the world. Mm-hmm. I just think that, like, from what Will is saying about the kind of different image of the philosopher, I feel like we've come so far from like what Hegel took for granted to be like acceptable. Like we live in a different kind of civil society and a different kind of state. And I feel like the default is almost like expecting you to be a public intellectual. And sometimes I find that this is even reinforcing and justifying of the status quo, even like more than people think it is. Mm -hmm. So like there's a, because there's a imminence to taking on this position and like the pressures that impinge upon people who do it. And so there's a, there's a way in which if that becomes like the function of the university and so on, and we take it for granted that philosophy can be active in this particular way. And like my students are always asking me like, how do I bring theory and practice together? And like, and like Hegel's answer is like, they already are baby. You don't have to do that. Like it's all, it's all there. (laughs) Why are you Um, trying so hard? But their, but their demand is always that philosophy needs to be more grounded, more concrete, more this, more mm. that. And I'm, of course, sympathetic to this, like, as a materialist and someone who's political. Like, I want them to be ground, grounded and concrete. But sometimes I actually do find myself giving the advice, like, all right, step back. Like, what do you think we're doing here? Like, we're, mm-hmm. we're working with concepts, people. Like, we're not, mm-hmm. we're not, this isn't an activist room. You know, we're, like, assessing. And I feel ambivalent about that. Like, I don't want anyone to just accept the status quo. But I also think that, like, I, I'm not sure what I th- think philosophy is supposed to be doing. And Hegel has, like, a pretty specific I- idea of it that I think is worth sort of taking seriously on its own own terms. I wonder with Hegel, there's, there's also a very particular velocity 
to a philosophical thought. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's meant or it can go as fast as, you know, each contingent demand for the philosopher to say something about X can, can right. do. Oh my God. I had, yeah. I had the opposite. I, th I think his thought moves really? at infinite speed in Hegel. Really? Okay. Wait, really? Because it seems yes. as if thought needs this time to elaborate for itself what the actual is. Well, what do you mean by infinite speed? Maybe like, you know, that would help because there's a difference between the the sort of enunciation yeah. and elaboration of philosophical yeah, yeah, yeah. thought and what the concept will grasp in its sort of moment of actualization he talks about that there are these like historical developments it takes time for this to happen as you put it right but like the rational reconstruction it happens all at once i think right and then mm. like we have this like sort of like order of exposition where like you know we 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 unpack it in its slow details and the determinacy of each of the moments. But it's I think it's all at once. You know, this sort of like grasp from the this this grasping from the whole. Maybe this is the specificity of that speculative third moment that he described, yeah. right? That like it's a dynamic totality. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's the language that, that Kevin Thompson uses uses it for. Right, right. And I was also thinking about like to go back to what you were just saying too, Lily, and like, I think we have to be concrete, but I think one of the things that's great about Hegel, and maybe this is one, one last point I'll make about what, what the hell dialectic means in his work. He thinks that like concreteness, like concrete things are universal, that they have universals in them, right? And that universality has to be concrete, that these things can't be just held opposed to one another. So that like, there's a thing and then the abstract concept of the thing, but that like, Getting to the level of the concrete is exactly what philosophy is supposed to be about for him. He has that little piece called Who Thinks Abstractly that he published in a newspaper. Also very funny to think about that, right? The role of a public intellectual, right? Where he's like, thinking abstractly is just like picking out one part of something and taking it for the whole. And concrete philosophical thought brings together all of its determinations in its historical specificity and particularity. And he's like, that's what this is about. That's more accurate that's more true that's more genuine it's so it's so hard to think these things together but that's what he's trying to challenge us to do it will be interesting to transition from that from this point or this set of insights into when we talk about marx the 11th thesis on Feuerbach, right in which he says like mm. the hitherto philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways but the point is to change it because they're obviously yeah. getting a much more militant um you know a much more militant conception of philosophy we haven't addressed the elephant in the room, which is the famous or infamous thesis, antithesis, uh, synthesis uh, <laughs> conception, which is the kind of popular conception of, of, of what dialectics is in Hegel. But maybe we can save that for our, for our Marx conversation, um, because I'm curious, because I, I feel like a lot of people, and I've done this myself, I kind of scoff a little bit at that account of what dialectics is it's almost a kind of reflexive way of feeling like oh okay well this person i don't know hasn't hasn't spent enough time uh you know reading hegel or marx understanding dialectics that's the general kind of popularized version of what it is but i did i do think it is worth pausing for a moment and saying and i don't know if that's the case for you guys but pausing and just asking like why is that it's not i don't think it's wrong right but why is it an insufficient way of understanding what 
dialectical progression is for Hegel to just frame it as like thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? That, that is, I think, if you asked anybody with a, a kind of cursory familiarity with philosophy, what is dialectics, that's the answer, you know, nine times out of 10 they're going to give you, right? Is um, Unless they're thinking of the Socratic question and answer or something. But if they're thinking about Hegel, they're going to say, that triadic order. So I don't know, maybe it's too much to put on the table at the very end, but I do think it's worth flagging. Yeah, I think at least partially, and I'm, I'm partially depending on one of my good friends who um, is a Hegel scholar. She did her whole dissertation on this, and I was talking about this, and she's like, that's a really interesting way to put it because, you know, it one makes it seem like everything in Hegel shows up in threes, but she's read, like, the philosophy of religion. She's like, <laughs> no, like, you know, sometimes there are fours. Sometimes he doesn't actually, you know, you know synthesize. And I, like, they're just, like, hanging chads sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, part of the issue is it's, um, it's too programmatic, and mm, you know it, it, ma it makes it into a formula that you know is not adequate to what I think Hegel wants is like you know you have to actually undergo the experience rather than taking this okay so this is what I have to do to do the dialectic thing right and it also offers maybe a model of the idea that you know there is you know originally a thesis antithesis and then a synthesis rather than you know it, it's the viewpoint from the whole and then reconstructing mm -hmm. and seeing mm -hmm. how how that is mm -hmm. um, I, I, I imagine that's why it might not be completely adequate because it makes Hegel into a formulaic thinker that you know for all his warts and all he wasn't formulaic at least in, in that manner <laughs> no, no I, I don't yeah you get so. that back to that problem of like applying a method which seems to be a kind of one size fits all thing that you can then impose on anything any argument or any you know aspect of the world and i think it's also one of the problems with it is that it it presupposes like those those two first terms it almost applies that understanding cognition that he distinguishes from speculative cognition, right? It's it's almost like an understanding cognition way of looking at how dialectics progresses because it starts by it starts with two things that are you accept their apparent opposition, right? And then it's a question of bringing these two things which are discrete into some kind of relationship with one another. Whereas I think what what Hegel does is something more complex than that, which is to try to show their imminent relationship to one another. I was just going to say yeah, this. They yeah. have an imminent yeah. relationship with one another. They aren't. You're not starting with two extrinsic elements, right? You're starting with a concept like freedom, which unfolds of its own. If you if you interrogate it like closely, that it unfolds into its own antithesis, right? Um, and then, or maybe this isn't even the right word, right? Into something that opposes it. Opposite. Yeah, to its opposite. Yeah, he said, like yeah. he says these things like very clear. Like I think you're exactly right. One of the big problems with this thesis synthesis synthesis picture is that it 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 just looks like well, first we got a thing over here, and then we and then we look around and we grab whatever its yeah. opposite is and we smash them together, yeah. right? And the, that's a synthesis in some way. But yeah. like the dialectical thing in Hegel is that like no things become their own opposites, right? This production of mm -hmm. its opposition out of itself is the, is the thing that dialectics traces. It's not opposed to its, uh, its opposite as something outside of it. It becomes opposite. And once you trace that becoming other in order to become what it is kind of progression, right? Once you trace that progression and you look at it from the speculative vantage, right? You see that those first two terms were never actually, right? retrospectively, right? You see that those first two terms were never actually separate in the first place, right? It, mm -hmm. it, that was a, that was a, I hesitate to say a mistake, but like a, a kind of error of cognition. It's a, a miss or at least a limited one-sided abstract mm -hmm. apprehension of the relationship.
Yeah, I don't know. So, I think all we right. solved well, Hegel. I think, yeah. I think we solved Hegel. That's it. We're not taking any questions. I will add just one more thing. that I do think that part of what, just to answer Owen's question, and like to kind of maybe summarize some of what the responses to it is that part of what that picture misses is what someone said earlier was like the velocity of, of thought, like mm. thought trying to capture itself, which is like why he'll talk about like it as a part of what philosophy does is a, a, pheno- a phenomenology of its own movement. And like you can't mm-hmm. capture like the phenomena of thought if you just think of it in that like triad way Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. like that's why like philosophy like it becomes a philosophy of history but philosophy itself becomes historical so Mm -hmm. like you can't just be like it's not a like history isn't a syllogism and i don't know hegel's just like a much for yeah for all his warts he's just like a much smarter person than that so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah just just to give give the dude his flowers (laughs) all right well i think that does it for us today Uh, New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Please like and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. If you like what we're doing, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash leftofphilosophy and give us some good reviews. Leave us comments on your podcast app. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone.